and welcome to the Hall of Fame podcast series featuring the best movies of all time. We're going through the history of film, discussing the elite cinema from all generations and inducting them into our Hall of Fame. My name is Matt Levy and here is my partner and co-host, Mark Rossi. What's going on, Mark? Not too much, man. I'm excited to uh, get back into, I think, something pretty different. Actually, that's kind of on the nose. It's now, now for something completely different. Yeah, that's kind of their catch catch line, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, um, you know, coming off of Lion King last week, which was a nice, wholesome, family animated movie, we have two movies today that I'd say are both adult-themed, adult-humored, and adult as far as uh, kind of edgy, the second one. So, yeah, let's let's jump right in. These are two, I think, great movies, one old, one new. Let's start with the old. Let's start with 1975's Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is the British comedy from the, the famous group, the Monty Python comedy group, who at this time was mostly doing a lot of you know, sketch comedy and small scene work. And here they are doing a full on film. Mark, what are your thoughts on Monty Python, the Holy Grail? It's it's uh, very interesting if you think about like their background with Monty uh, Python's like, Flying Circus. And prior to this, like I just kind of uh, name dropped, they had done and now for something completely different, which was their first foray into the theater. But it was basically just the same format as their you know television show. Uh, this is the first time where they really tried to tie it together uh, into a plot. And then obviously this movie became the basis for Eric Idle's foray into musical theater with uh, spam a lot. So, yeah, we uh, get that, you know, it's funny. You don't usually get a musical, you know, 30 plus years later, right. but yeah, this movie was kind of a small movie and it still, still sort of is, it never really, I say it's got a, a nice following it's respected or I'd say globally as a, a classic comedy, but yeah, it's funny that this movie decades later actually had a Broadway musical, a musical that went on tour around the country, was in tour in, in Europe as well. And, and they're actually, I think, making a live action movie of the musical. Yep, it's coming full circle, coming back into theaters as a, uh, as a film based on the musical, which was based on the film. It's, it's, really, it's really something. Yeah, it really is. So let's let's jump into the movie. So this, as we said, was a very this is a very silly, low budget. You know, these guys, this this group. You know, you have Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones that direct this, and then you have you know John Cleese, Eric Idle, Michael Palin. These guys that have never directed or starred in a movie before, but here they are taking on their own their own challenge. Yeah, I, I think this was just like kind of a, a labor of love and and also maybe out of boredom between seasons of their television show. And uh, we end up with with a, a great, a great comedy classic. I'd say it probably resides more along the lines of a cult classic at this point, but had enough widespread appeal to become a, a I, would, I would dare to say blockbuster Broadway musical. So yeah, the appeals there I mean for wide audiences yeah it can only be so small for it to obviously it's big enough that it had attraction but this move this movie is about king arthur and his knights at the round table so you know that here they are these this comedy group decide to take on you know king arthur's quest to find the holy grail and it has him starting out as just king arthur on on his own with his patsy and they are 
you'd think they're on horseback by the noises, but they're just banging a bunch of coconuts together. And he's on his way trying to recruit people to help him find this holy grail. And it is really, when you break it down, a bunch of scenes, basically sketch work, scene by scene, like SNL type, that's thrown together to make a movie. But each scene is just so unforgettable and so classic. Mark, any just off the top of your head of these scenes that jump out at you when you think about Monty Python, the Holy Grail? So the the recurring gag of the coconuts with just the even the conversations, but also as the knights of the round table basically start to to congregate together, just that all they all have a person with coconuts just making the horse noises as they're kind of just hopping along the world. I, it's just I, I, a phenomenal I gag. I wonder where that that gag started, but. You know, it's funny that the, when they meet other knights, I think it's the French knights that go, are you just banging a bunch of coconuts? Or I think it's one of the people they come up to. Yeah, and yeah it's, just, it's, it's like it, one of the first encounters. And he's like, well, where did you find the coconuts? And, it's, and it becomes a whole dialogue, a whole conversation about where the coconuts came from. And that's just the silliness of this movie. I, I love the scene with the French soldiers you know, them just name calling and yelling at each other. It's just absolutely hilarious. And they're just launching animals and chickens at each other. And the Black Knight, I feel like, is one of those classic scenes where King Arthur comes across this Black Knight that won't let him pass. So they start to have a duel. And before you know it, the Black Knight is missing arms, missing legs, and he continues to fight. And, he, you know, even though he's lost an arm, he goes, that's just a scratch. And it becomes this whole silly conversation through these this just encounter and these these scenes are now i think part of like comedy history yeah i i have to give like a, a big shout out specifically to john cleese who's the french soldier and the black knight uh, i think he's one of the highlights especially just the banter and the constant just name name calling by the french knight it's just fantastic but i think one of the early highlights for me is is the witch trial i think that was just really funny yeah, the yeah. witch trial's wonderful where they're trying to determine if this woman is a witch and she has a fake nose they put on her and they decide to weigh her, I think, against a duck to determine if they both float. And it becomes this ridiculous conversation like most scenes in this movie, but it, it is hilarious when you when you listen in and and it's hard not to just think back to all the different ridiculous moments. Now, you brought up John Cleese and I'd say he's probably of this group, he's probably went on to have the biggest career of all the men involved. You know, Terry Gilliam has directed some fantastic movies. He's gone on to do a lot with his career, but John Cleese has had a heck of a career. You know, Fish Cold Wanda is, is a lot of people enjoy that movie. And he's got dozens others of, of classic comedies that he's starred in or been a part of. Yeah, he's had a, a phenomenal career that's obviously spanned many decades. He's probably the most recognizable because he does a lot of his work in front of the camera. Eric Idle, like we had mentioned before, eventually penned Spamalot. Uh, so he's well known for his music and, and still as a member of Monty Python. But I think non-Monty Python fans are most likely to recognize John Cleese out of the group. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, you look back at Terry Gilliam and he's gone on to direct Brazil, which for people that don't know, it's, it's definitely an out there movie, but it's, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good worthwhile movie. Time Bandits, which was an eighties movie, 12 Monkeys, which is the, you know, the Bruce Willis movie, which is, has a cult following as well. And then Fear and right. Loathing in Las Vegas, which is the Johnny Depp kind of a trippy movie, but these are all 
really have a really big following. I'm, I'm skipping a few Fisher King, a few others that are really well right. known. He's had a heck of a career, Terry Gilliam, and it started here with Monty Python, the Holy Grail, which was an experiment, really. Yeah, it, it's a, an experiment. And I think, uh, again, I think it, it really is something that just became a project that they wanted to continue to do some work while they were having their downtime between seasons. And it, it really worked out phenomenally for everybody. Yeah, I mean, this movie famously had an extremely low budget. When you say low budget, I think they said they were trying to get money from anyone who would give them a handout. And they had a little bit of a following at this point, being the, the Monty Python comedy group. But they weren't getting big money from studios, so they had to go to actually to to rock stars who, you know, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, even Elton John would donate money to them. That way they can use it as a tax write-off because it's actually a very good tax write-off donating money to making a you know a British film. So, you know, it's funny that you know they had to scrape together money just to get this made. And anyone who's seen this movie, the ending is very abrupt and I'd say almost disappointing. <laughs> but they said they ran out of money and this was just the easiest way out. And it, it became comical, to, which it's very, I think, in line with the British humor. But the, the, the ending is very abrupt. Yeah, the ending is very abrupt almost like the sopranos if you think about it that way like it obviously predated that by a a a long time but this was done to to kind of just really drive home that that british humor is like well we ran out of money this is a way we can make it funny yeah i think they tried to and when i first watched the movie i was probably disappointed i now respect the ending years later just because you're, you're the whole thing is them trying to get to the grail and meeting all these different people along the way. And at the end, it becomes, you get back to the French soldiers again, and you think they're going to have a fight and a battle. And then everyone just gets arrested. It's, it's quite comical. And, you know, I think this movie is more about the journey and the laughs along the way than it really is about the storing or any certain payoff at the end. Yeah. I think they, they established that early with the credits, uh, the way that they formatted the credits. Uh, if you watched it on DVD, well, when it first came out, they also had uh, the DVD menu for the for the hearing impaired where they just shouted the menu options. So they established kind of early uh, that 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 type of sensibility, that type of humor that's going to be the focal point throughout the, the film. And then for it to end the way that it does and they drag it out for so long, which I think is 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 perfect. Well, I right? love that you brought up the opening credits and it's something I almost forgot to mention and I love how they're going through it. It's almost playing a little bit of like soft, gentle music. And then it keeps pausing because, you know, they're saying the writers and this and that, and they're, they're blaming this one and this one scrapped this one's notes. And it's just funny that, you know, they set the tone early on, just like, let's say, Star Wars sets the tone and with their right. intro, you know, this is Monty Python setting the tone for what kind of goofy, ridiculous, silly movie you're about to witness. And in between the scenes are actually these animated sequences as well that also show off the just kind of the feel and tone of, of what you're getting here. Yeah, I think that's a, that's definitely a staple of Monty Python throughout their films, at least to this point there, um, and, and obviously in The Flying Circus, those type of animated uh, sequences, or I don't, know, I don't know how else you would describe it, stop motion kind of? Yeah, it's sort of like yeah, a stop motion like a, animation. Like a mix between the two. Yeah, it's definitely not animation you see much of in 2020 it's definitely something from the in the 60s to 70s yeah definitely but along those lines they they have those types of sequences and then they tie that into one of the one of my favorite scenes is when they're encountering the monster and then the animator dies and that's how they resolve 
killing the monster. That was it's in the just... cave of Arr. <laughs> Yeah, there's some there's some really wonderful sequences, and I, I feel like each one you can talk about a piece of dialogue or just a couple of words they say that become kind of punchlines or or lines that you use throughout your life. You know, you have the Black Knight scene. You know, I love the scene, the Knights Who Say Knee, which is one of the classic scenes. Which they want a they want a, a nice bush, I believe, is what they wanted as a present to get past them. You know, as you talk about the cave entrance, there's actually this evil, scary rabbit that <laughs> blocks them from entering the cave. And then there's the famous bridge of death scene, which is also kind of ridiculous. And there's just, you can countless go on and on. This is just staple Monty Python comedy at its best. And as you said, it's gone on to spawn Spamalot. And Spamalot, which I had the pleasure of seeing it on Broadway and actually in Vegas as well, is a hilarious take on this movie and obviously adding more music because there is some musical sections to this movie but yeah making it into a full-on blown musical is pretty impressive yeah i think they did a great job with the adaptation tying that and then obviously uh tying in some music from other monty python uh works as well with uh, always look on the bright side of life that's always a, a monty python you know staple at any show that you'll see eric idle do or anyone with monty python when they're involved so yeah it's it's a, I think it's a, a fantastic highlight. I think it shows a, an interesting pivot point where from their first film where you saw that they were going to be able to build off of this and maybe they'll go into something that is fully plot driven and then they ended up doing something like that with Life of Brian. So Yeah, Life of Brian is definitely, I'd say, more plot focused. Right. Some people do actually like it more than Monty Python, The Holy Grail. You know, pick, pick you know, that's up to you. What, what There's you no bad choice. Preference. There's no bad or... or right or wrong choice there i'd say they differ i'd say they, they definitely have a different feel and, and tone to them i think i enjoyed just the overall silliness of this maybe when i watched it in my life it hit more with me but when i watched life of brian there's definitely uh, a ton of laughs there too maybe that one will get a musical as well one day yeah who knows but yeah i think i think this was an interesting pivot point in in the way that they kind of approached their comedy yeah, and it's it's gone on to, you know, inspire. And you said, you know, they wrote and made more movies after this. It inspired each of them to have pretty successful careers, some in and outside of the Monty Python group. And obviously, Terry Gilliam's got to do things. So this movie was very impactful. And a lot of comedic directors and writers have gone on to say how much this movie motivated and inspired them. You know, such a ridiculous, silly, over-the-top movie like this and you know it's funny that a movie from 1975 has legs that we're still talking about it 40 plus years later and comedy is so objective and comedy is such a delicate thing and it can easily offend people and it can easily change based on your audience and I feel like this is one of those movies that yes some people might not love all the humor in it but I think it does a good job of not insulting certain people I think it, it dances the lines of what you can say and not say pretty well as far as a comedy. And I think it's aged pretty well because of that. Yeah, I think it, there are two types of comedy styles that have really translated well and are still playing well, especially now. I think slapstick always does well for you know family type of humor and for most age groups. But I think this dry type of British humor has aged really, really well. 
I think because I don't think Americans always appreciate it. And Americans have now, I think, adapted more British humor into their writing as well. And it's more accepted and you'll see more British comedies and British inspired stuff come to the States. But I agree with you in the seventies and eighties, that wasn't a popular thing to see too much, you know, British, you know, filmmaking going on in the States or, or coming over to the States. Yeah. I think uh, th this type of humor in this film is uh, it's still in your face uh, as much as American humor, but it, it doesn't rely on obvious types of cultural references necessarily, which seems to be a, a major staple of like American comedy in both film and tv for a couple decades like the 80s 90s even early uh, early 2000s well, even earlier than that you know i i was this is a little off topic but i was watching the bugs bunny 80th anniversary blu-ray set and i grew up loving looney tunes that's you know from before us but it was very much on tv when we were growing up right and a lot of the jokes i don't think i even understood or appreciated because they make references to actors and people as you said, of that time, making references to things that the jokes just go way over your head. And yeah, this movie doesn't do that. It doesn't, you don't need to know certain references, certain things. All you need to know is what a goose is or what a chicken is or right. know what, it, it's very much simple, basic, slapstick, silly humor that he said is for all ages. It's rated PG, even though some of it, it seems harsh at times. This movie's yeah. actually rated PG. Yeah, I think it's, it's you know, um, we, we always go back to these types of films and the ratings with this and also like uh, Back to the Future. I, it predates the PG-13 rating, so it'd probably be PG-13 if we sure. were to rate it today. But yeah, I think the, the strength of this type of comedy and strength of Monty Python is even if it's kind of slapstick and, you know, off-center, it's, it's self-contained. So you don't need to kind of research something to, to get why something's funny. Yeah, I agree. You know, this movie, as I said, it's a comedy film. I'd say it's an adventure film. So you're following the adventure of King Arthur and his knights. It's very much, I say, a fantasy film because it is have some fantasy elements. It is silly at times. And I, I just think it's fun. I, I watched this as a, as a young kid. I was probably, you know, 10 or so years old when I first saw it. And I just was laughing my tush off just and just repeating the jokes, saying them over and over again. And I think there's something you can appreciate as an adult, a kid. It's kind of a ageless you can enjoy this a story in a, a movie like this yeah in my childhood i had a steady diet of uh, monty python as well so this is a movie that that still plays well to me uh i think most of their material still really plays well to me and I, it still gets laughs from a lot of like my uh cousins kids that are like in their, in their teens so i think it, it's something that's aged more more well than you could have imagined it would have I agree. And it's it's very highly rated on you know critic and review sites, IMDb. It's in their actually top 250 movies. Rotten Tomatoes offers a 97% approval rating. Yeah, I don't think this movie's going anywhere. I think it's still a respected and an honored film. I don't think it's, you know, when we talk about Hall of Fame, we're not always talking about best picture nominations or best actors. I think the acting in this is serviceable to service what, what they're trying to do. And it, it, not every movie needs to be that we talk about that we want to put in our Hall of Fame doesn't have to be, as you've said, the Godfather. But this movie does what it's trying to do really well. And I think it's one of the great comedies of, of film ever. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. Uh, the strength of Monty Python is their chemistry and their timing together. And, you know, you can get better actors to try to try to make this into something more Oscar worthy if you wanted to, but it's, it's just their chemistry together and their, their comedic timing with, 
with their own writing that really is what makes this a classic in my eyes i agree so i think we will finish off our conversation with monty python the holy grail uh the classic from the 70s i'd say definitely watch it it's easy to find a copy either either online somewhere you know dvd blu-ray it's definitely a fun watch you'd have to kind of enjoy some silliness some ridiculous british humor but i still say i recommend this definitely worth a good watch Right. Yeah, I think it's definitely worth a watch. I believe it's still on Netflix. So that's another way you can check it out there as well. Yeah, it's always hard to keep up with what's what's on, what's off, what's been removed. But if, right. yeah, if you can catch it on Netflix, that's a great, that's definitely a great way to spend an evening. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to take a very different path to our second movie. This might be, I, I got to look back, might be our newest movie we discussed. And we are talking about 2006, Martin Scorsese's The Departed, which less, I don't know how well known it is, is based off, it's a remake of the 2002 Hong Kong film called Infernal Affairs. And this is an American crime slash, I'd say drama thriller directed, as we said, by Scorsese. And this is actually the only Scorsese film that he actually won the Academy Award for Best Picture. He's been nominated, but he, you know, can't always win. But he won for this one, and I think this is just a, just a really strong movie. Mark, what are your feelings on The Departed? Yeah, I'm a big fan of The Departed. Like you were just touching, I think this is the first, it probably won't be the last uh, cross-cultural remake of uh, Infernal Affairs, but takes that basically takes place in, in South Boston, which so, this film and a lot of subsequent films has become like the setting for like crime dramas for some reason between like this and you have the town and so many other types of films, but it's a great, great performances by Leonardo DiCaprio, Jack Nicholson, great directing. It's a, it's a star studded cast. It's very memorable in terms of plot. There are several standout lines. uh, And I think it's just really well put together. Yeah, I agree. You know, I think you, Certain movies, you can talk about certain elements that pull the movie together. And this guy, I feel like, has everything. I think, as you said, the acting, uh, you know, I think the cast does an excellent job. The characters are well-developed. I think it's a, it's a well-written script or, you know, well-written remake, you know, of the, of the Hong Kong film. I think that, you know, Scorsese is, is working his elements, using his soundtrack whenever he can, which Scorsese is kind of famous for using, you know, different soundtrack elements to make a movie feel more relevant to the, the culture and the style of the movie. And I agree with you, the, the, the locations that they shot, yes, it's a you know Boston film. I actually heard they, they shot a lot of this in New York because New York had more tax incentives or more you know, benefits to them. So you, know, you can sometimes use certain spots to make it look like another city, but yeah, this movie top to bottom is just really strong. Yeah, definitely a, a fantastic collaboration i think they do a great job with both the soundtrack uh you know the score itself there's there's some elements of it i believe howard shore did the music for this probably most noted for his work with lord of the rings but their selection of a lot of pop music in particular and that's something that scorsese like you had mentioned before is really really adept at picking the right music uh like contemporary popular music to just perfectly frame the scenes yeah i feel uh, like he does a great job you know of getting that boston feel and getting the frame for what's going on in the movie he just throws a song in and i feel like now i hear these songs on the radio or on a cd or wherever and it'll bring me right back to this movie 
And, you know, let's hit, you know, some of the, what about this movie is about. And you got it's such an interesting story because you have an undercover cop and the mole in the police attempting to identify each other while infiltrating an Irish gang in South Boston. So, you know, this is played by stars Leonardo DiCaprio, star Matt Damon, Jack Nicholson, Mark Wahlberg, Martin Sheen. I can keep going on. The cast is really unbelievable. And Leo and Matt Damon are playing our two leads. And they have this really interesting back and forth story how Leo at first is the one that's sort of in trouble and tries to kind of write that and do the right thing and ends up becoming an undercover and infiltrating an Irish gang. And then you have Matt Damon on the other side who kind of lives that you know nice life, but is really, you know, working for the Irish gang and helping him because, you know, he has ties to Jack Nicholson's character, you know, the big mob, you know, Costello. So it's really interesting watching their parallels and how their characters be behave in these scenarios. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the way the characters are portrayed. Obviously, you have one uh, that's originally from the wrong side of the tracks there that's trying to you know, improve himself and become a state trooper and is told you're never going to make it as a regular state trooper. The only way that you're going to be able to serve us is by going undercover and then falling back into that lifestyle he had tried so desperately to escape from. And meanwhile, the other character, Matt Damon's character, is also trying to escape his past in a different way. He has higher aspirations. But the two characters' journeys are actually very much tied to the same type of desire, the same goal of of kind of leaving their past behind and how they're both tragically unable to escape their past. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think you, you really delicately explain that. And and then you have Jack Nicholson on the other side who's kind of pulling the strings and, and working with both of them. Jack Nicholson playing Costello. And he here, I feel like is in his element. Costello is the big, you know, the leader of the mob of the of this of this, he's the mob boss essentially. He's just, I feel like having a great time with this role, just playing the, you know, the, the on top of the world. I got cops in my pocket. I got good guys, bad guys. Everyone's working for me. Yeah, it's the perfect role for him to be slightly unhinged and to really get to ham it up and for it to be true to his character. You know, not where you're like, oh, is he overacting this? No, this is a, this is a, a mob boss that is going to just basically flaunt how he can't be caught in front of lawmakers regularly. So he is a bigger than life type of persona. That's what they wanted. And that gives you know Jack Nicholson really the freedom to, to ham it up and, and make the most of it. Yeah, I've always enjoyed stories like this where you can have a bad character like Jack Nicholson's Costello and, and you know, a character that you know, has done a lot of wrong things in his life and is committing a lot of crimes but is so powerful that can actually have people in his pocket and influence cops and, you know, mayors and people just working all around. He has that sort of influence. And I've always found stories like that interesting. And some of them are historically accurate, you know, even stories like Narcos, which I, you know, I, I you know, watched right. here or there, the TV show. We have these powerful characters that basically control the police. Yeah. It's, it's frightening to think about how, you know, real life can can imitate the the art that we uh, we put out there and then obviously narcos is a, a fictional story that you almost don't want to believe is true but it's pretty darn accurate but yeah i think i think it's interesting 
like we have the the two characters of um you know leonardo dicaprio's character and matt damon's character and how they're kind of interconnected and similar you have two kind of father figures in costello and queenan uh played by uh martin sheen who also you know I won't say they have as direct a line of a comparison where they're as similar, but you have two different types of father figures, yeah. Um, you know, to the two different characters. Yeah, you're right. And you know, Jack Nicholson's character Costello, who actually I think is based on a his- historical character. I think they yeah, say he's based- they based him on Woody Bulger. Right, right, right. But yeah, he's very much a father figure for Colin, you know, Matt Damon's character, and yeah, Martin Sheen is is really the you know the 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 undercover guy that's giving him guidance, Leo, and giving, telling him what to do and, you know, how to kind of not get caught. And then you also have uh, Vera Farmiga, I'm probably going to pronounce her name wrong because she's done a lot of things. She's excellent in this movie. She's Leo's, I believe, therapist or psychiatrist that's helping him on his way back, but also Matt Damon's girlfriend. So that's also another thing that ties them together is this woman. And it's really interesting how her character balances off the two of them as well. Yeah, this is really early into her kind of breakthrough into main film. Uh, she had this, and then a few years after that, she was really recognized for her work in like Up in the Air. So she does a great job in this film. I was actually going to just kind of touch on like how great the supporting cast is between uh, her role as uh, the girlfriend, uh, Madeline Madden, and also Alec Baldwin is like a scene stealer himself, you know, throughout the film they they have just so many great i i don't want to call them even just like bit roles but like sup, even supporting, supporting roles. roles yeah they just right. they round out the cast and scorsese never has problem getting people even if it's a smaller role if he says hey i need you for this part right. very rarely is someone going to say no and i think we also skipped upon mark Wahlberg, who plays the kind of the crass loud boston cop where he's very much in his element here it's it's a lot of fun watching this movie he's got a lot of the one-liners and there are a couple funny bits in this movie and he he's chewing up these scenes yeah he he has some of the best one-liners possibly in like like recent film history as uh steph sergeant dignam but his his just entire persona throughout the film his delivery of the lines there's there's depth to his character too you see it in in there's glimpses but when he's when he's being that brash that that brash character is really when he shines and, and steals so many of the scenes that he's in i agree because i feel like in so many movies they either play him either he's is big and strong and he's obviously known for being you know a lot of the action movies sometimes they play him as a softer character and i think it's funny having this kind of this aggressor so yeah you know this movie has as you said so many well cast and well acted well performed roles the story takes so many weaves in two and a half hours this movie has you all over the place as you're basically watching these movies these characters throughout their life you're watching leo and matt as basically kids through you know grown men so it's, it's really interesting watching the entire it's almost like a it's almost like a historical epic that's based very very loosely on events of crimes but it's just interesting watching the this kind of the story and the kind of the decade play out yeah you can have any number of types of comparisons like that it's kind of a coming of age tale uh, mixed with a like a like a tragedy 
mixed with uh like uh, yeah like this there's there's an epic kind of war crime drama happening at the same time and yeah, the struggle between good of, and evil i feel like it's got a little bit of bronx tale in it you know yeah. that it's got a little bit of you know you can kind of take you know scorsese's other movies mean streets these other ones you can kind of find how this movie came to be it's got definitely got some dramatic moments it's definitely got some thrilling where you're wondering is leo going to get caught you know because i i think you, you kind of you kind of feel for him more than anything because he is trying to do the right thing. I think he's the the heart of the movie, I would say. Yeah, I think that's accurate. It's interesting because they kind of pass off between the two of them is is Colin Sullivan going to get caught? Is is Billy going to get caught? They kind of pass it off back and forth. They do. And I feel like they do want you also to root for Matt Damon's character. I think Colin also gets almost as much screen time, if, if not just as much. But he's obviously, I think, in, in more morally gray and more less than morally gray areas but yeah you're right they make them kind of you feel the trajectory of both characters and and the ending you know spoilers but you know neither character makes it gets their happy ending you, you get into these type of lifestyles these kind of movies scorsese always teaches you that you, you deal with you know gangs and mobsters you're not always going to get out on the other side you know uh clean and and free well, I think it's actually alluded to very early in the movie, uh, and it's a scene where Costello is talking to, you know, young Colin Sullivan and a, br- a bunch of other, you know, little kids early into, you know, their tenure with him. And he says, when he was growing up, that uh, they always said you can either be a cop or a criminal. And he says uh, to them, he says, but if you're facing a loaded gun at the other side of it, what's the difference? And it, it's interesting. That's the line that they use to kind of set the entire picture in motion. And it's kind of what befalls the characters. Both characters end up falling to a criminal and a cop, you know, respectively in, in order in the film. And, and, and even to that, you know, very much known when people call someone a rat, that's usually someone that is talking or giving information or is, is kind of hiding their identity in, in a group. And at the end, in the final scene, there's actually a rat walking across a window, right. a window ledge. And I think that's also supposed to be sort of tongue in cheek, kind of a joke at, you know, this kind of lifestyle If you're a rat, you know, comes back to bite you. Right. And I think it's, it's interesting though. And I didn't make this connection until you just mentioned that is that within the criminal circuit, if there's someone that's, that's infiltrated them, it's a rat. And it, when you've infiltrated the police, it's a mole. Ah, yeah. You know, that's, I've that's never sh- made that connection until right now. <laughs> you know, but rodents really get, really get a, a bad rap in, in, in terms of terminology. Yeah, I mean, people like people that are loyal. And in this movie, this movie is very much about trust. No one can really trust anyone. Costello has trouble throughout the entire movie with phone numbers and this and that and trusting anyone on his team. And the police also feel like there's some people within the police they can't trust that are giving Costello information or loyal to him. So yeah, this movie is very much about rats and moles and, and who we, we can trust. And I think this movie is is a, a wonderful watch even today. I think this movie, only you know 15 years removed, it's not an old movie by any means, but it is interesting where Leo and Matt Damon and some of these actors were in their careers, because obviously Leo had done Titanic and Matt Damon had done Goodwill Hunting, which were some of their earlier, you know, star roles. But I don't think they were as big as they were today, but they were still well-known actors. Yeah, I think Matt Damon was a little bit possibly, I'd, I'd say, higher in his career at that point. He had just finished the third Born movie, if I'm remembering correctly, around this time and was looking to, you know, 
kind of expand out, uh, do something a little bit different so that he wasn't pigeonholed into being Jason Bourne for the rest of his life. And I think he's done a pretty good job since that time to make sure that that wasn't the case. And, uh, and Leo, obviously, you know, well, Leo went on to do, you know, he went to great. Yeah. He went into Wolf of Wall Street, Inception, you know, the newest Tarantino movie. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Of course, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So he's got his Oscar winning role with The Revenant. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That was that was an amazing movie. So, you know, I'd say all four of those movies, he had Oscar worthy performances. Right. All followed this. So he did get his you know credit here. He was nominated. Departed did win for Best Director, but was also nominated for Best Picture. Best Actor for Leo, Best Supporting Actor, Jack Nicholson, and Mark Wahlberg. Both of them were nominated for Best Supporting Actor, as well as you said, William Monaghan as Best Screenplay. So yeah, this movie definitely got the recognition it deserved and was financially successful too. This movie went on to gross over $130 million in the States and almost $160 million, so grossing almost $300 million, which on a $90 million budget, you know, Scorsese movies don't always make a ton of money because they're not always the biggest mainstream films, but they're, this is one of the biggest and most successful of his career. Yeah, I think, I think the story being kind of as, as riveting as it is with such great uh, performances, uh, again, the Academy recognizing them with those three nominations, if nothing else, even if they didn't have a win, is a, is a large reason why this movie did so well. You know, you can have a great collection of actors, but if you don't have the performances and the story to go along with it, it's not going to, to resonate with audiences. And I think how we were kind of going over before, how you're, you're meant to kind of relate more with, with Leo's character with Costigan, but you still relate to, to Sullivan and, and Matt Damon's character as well. That type of gray line that they're towing is, is what makes for a really compelling watch. And that's something that still translates now 15 years later, as much as it did when it came out. You know, these, these, these type of movies, I feel like are always telling people, listen, there's no shortcuts in life. And when you do try and take shortcuts or do the wrong thing to try and further yourself, this is what can happen to you. And you know, people enjoy movies like this. You know, this movie was very successful as far as, you know, Rotten Tomatoes, which we've, we've talked about a few times, is a one of those big review websites. It's a 91% approval rating, which is phenomenal. And this is one of the top 50 movies in IMDb. So, you know, people like it. Audiences out there enjoyed this movie. It was on almost every top 10 list the year it came out. You know, a lot of people's top five movie of the year it came out, 2006. So, yeah, this movie is, is loved. I don't know that it's, talked about a ton to this day i feel like i feel like sometimes it gets forgotten and i feel like it's one of those movies that needs to get talked about more because i think it's an excellent movie yeah i think that kind of falls into the the martin scorsese catalog of films there's just so many that you can talk about and this one just doesn't spring to the top of the list there when you have goodfellas when you have uh raging bull and taxi driver you know it, it's kind of hard to 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 find headway uh, in Martin Scorsese's kind of uh, directorial filmography. Yeah, uh, I think but it's a great film. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it, that's probably what it is. I think it's also, you know, 2006, where you're in the in the middle of all these movies, probably with a lot of big star casts. So, you know, you're in the middle of that kind of crazy area where you have, you know, superhero movies and all the different stuff and rom-coms and everything else that's going on with, with Hollywood and cinema in 2006. And then also the fact that you said, you know, Scorsese becomes part of the Taxi Driver, which is a monster movie, Raging Bull, Goodfellas, and even all the way up until 
you know, Wolf of Wall Street, which another Leo, Leo's gone on to do so many Scorsese yeah. movies between Gangs of New York, The Aviator. I feel like Shutter he, Island. Yeah, Shutter Island, which I think is an underrated, yeah. you know, like thriller horror type movie. So yeah, right. you know, even Irishman, which I I actually really enjoyed on Netflix this past year. So right. Scorsese, it's hard to I guess you know Casino, which I forgot as well. So yeah, you know, Scorsese has you know dozen plus hits. And it's easy, I guess, for Departed to get lost, but I think it very much deserves a spot to be nominated as an all-time great movie. Yeah, and I think it's it's the it's an interesting film because you see a lot of these cross-cultural type of remakes uh, occur, and it doesn't always pan out very well. But this is the rare movie where both the source material, the original uh, film Internal Affairs, and this film both got recognized by their their top award this with you know the oscar nominations and i uh the you know oscar equivalent yeah i think in hong kong so I, I think that's a great point because a lot of times this is not the first time a movie has been taken from a different source whether it's a uh, hong kong film or a japanese film or a film that is that starts somewhere else and you know the one that comes to mind for me is old boy right which for me was a very very popular dark film that is it is it correct south korean south korean I'm originally a south korean film and now spike lee decided to make a movie in the last decade in, in, in the states and i thought the movie was awful yeah. and i loved the original i watched it you know when it came out you know probably 20 plus 20 years ago give or take whatever it was 15 20 years ago and i just think like you said sometimes source material doesn't translate to you have to make it work in the society and the culture that you live in. And this movie, I'm sure, which I, I, I watched the original Infernal Affairs years ago. I barely remember it, but it was very much ingrained in that world. And this is very much the boss, South Boston. It's very much that world growing up there, the streets, being part of that system. And I right. think if you don't get that right, the whole movie could just fall apart. Right. And it's so easy for it to fall apart, like you were kind of going over with what happened with Old Boy, that I think it's a true credit both to, you know, Scorsese for his kind of directorial skill, but also to William Monaghan for his screenplay in successfully taking the the major plot points and what made that film so in interesting when you have, you know, infiltration on both sides and putting that really well and ingraining that in South Boston type of gangster culture and and not missing a beat so yeah it's it's rare that it works well while you were kind of reviewing that i was just thinking of any other examples but i think the only other one i could think of is like the magnificent seven and seven samurai yeah there's a bunch and maybe we can re, re revisit this topic and do a little research and maybe end of next episode talk about some of the other ones just to mention them out loud because off the top of my head i'm going to struggle but right. i think it's most of the times they've been unsuccessful i think very rarely are they successful like this where maybe the remake becomes better than the original or more notorious than the original right so right yeah i think like you said the the screenplay cannot be understated how hard that must be to take the original and to now make it work in a completely different environment and world and then the director martin scorsese who is obviously a, a very seasoned director at this point but to make all this come to life and to make it all come from the page and take the scenes and take and, and make it all work. So I think this is a great movie talking about it, talking about it and reliving it again to make me realize just what a great movie this was, the performances, the actors. And I feel like you don't get a movie like this all the time with, with such a good cast 
from top to bottom. And usually you get maybe two or three stars of this caliber. But, you know, like you said, this is a well-rounded cast and everyone behind, I think this is an A+. Yeah, absolutely. This is a slam dunk pick. A really, really fantastic film. Yeah. So I think that basically, unless you have anything else that you want to hit on, Mark, I think that kind of rounds out our conversation on The Departed. Yeah, I'll say uh, this film is also responsible, good or bad, depending on your opinion, for the rise of the Dropkick Murphys. Uh, so you're welcome or uh, we're sorry, depending yeah, on how that, you look at it. That song, Shipping Up to Boston, uh, it's hard not to think of this movie. And I agree with you. I don't think I listened to the band till this movie came out. Then I said, oh, that, that, the Dropkick Murphys, they sound pretty cool. So yeah, there's definitely some, some music uh, from the soundtrack of this movie that has definitely started some bands careers yeah the other thing i just well, i'll briefly touch on with the music is i i think it's also a scorsese staple to kind of take in a classic type of rock song and really make that the staple of this movie this one it was uh give me shelter by the rolling, rolling stones, stones yeah. and then famously in in goodfellas when you have the scene where everything's kind of coming undone you have the piano coda section of layla by uh derek and the dominoes so he, yeah. he continues that type of motif, which I'm personally a big fan of. No, I love that. And I feel like the other thing that we probably didn't talk about enough is specific scenes and elements of this movie. Um, the one that always comes to mind to me is, I think we, we talked about briefly is, yes, Matt Damon meeting, you know, the, the, the love interest, you know, Vera Farmiga and, you know, some of the other stuff that you see the charm and you really meet these characters. But I think it's the tenseful moments for me that I remember, you know, Leo, you know, sitting in the car, and you know, the text message going through and are they getting it and finding out are they tracking him and the vans and, and all the, the undercover stuff that I think this movie is really at its heart, you know, seeing how tense it must be, the life of being undercover all the time, 24 seven, knowing that everything you're doing and saying is an act and a lie because you're trying to you know, basically get these people imprisoned. And I think this movie does a really good job of showing just how stressful it must be to be living a double life. And these two guys are both doing it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. One scene that I, I think will stick in our minds as people that lived through that time period and had cell phones in that time period is the texting in the pocket that they're able to do. You can't do that with a smartphone. So uh, I, I thought that was interesting to just kind of think about within like, you know, with a modern lens on it. Yeah, the, like, old, the, old push button. Yeah. the old push button phone. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mark, I appreciate it again. This was a great, uh, great conversations again. Anywhere that you, anything you want to plug? I, I just wanted to, you know, thank you again for bringing me along on this journey with you here. It's been a, a fun time. I think today was interesting that we, we went with two movies that are on completely different opposite ends of the spectrum there to kind of just reinforce that, you know, there are great movies of all types for uh, all different genres uh, and there's not a right way to get there to make a great movie. Yeah. Film, you know, some people will find they go through life only liking certain types of movies and some people spread and, and get into more diverse and different genres, different types of films. You and me have to be like film lovers and we happen to, probably enjoy more types and styles and we're open to more things than most people. But yeah, there's just no one way to make a good movie. And I think we've discussed so far in our couple months doing this plus in that there's a lot of great movies out there. We love talking about them. <laughs> yeah. I think if there's one thing that I hope that our, you know, anyone that's listening takes away from it is that like similar to maybe your palate when you're younger versus your palate when you get a little bit older is just, you know, you, ne you never know what you might like. Just try, try to 
if as long as it's well prepared, you're going to like all different types of foods that you might thought you never would have liked. So maybe you're geared towards a specific genre of film, but you know, hopefully with the the recommendations that we can make here, you can expand your, you know, film watching palette a little bit there and might find a different genre of film uh, that you enjoy that you haven't previously. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it compared to food. I think everything gets back to food. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Mark. Guys, follow us on Hall of Fame pod on Instagram. Please, you know, listen, subscribe, tell your friends, please send us a review. It really does help. We'll see you guys next time. See you next time, guys.